from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You know, it can be a perfectly beautiful blue sky day and there's water in the streets. And it's led to fish on the street. It's led to octopuses and parking garages. Uh, It became like a daily fact of life for people who live in areas that flood a lot. This is Alex Harris. She's a climate journalist for the Miami Herald. She's talking about a phenomenon called sunny day flooding. I've seen this myself. It's very disorienting walking through the streets in shin-deep water on a gorgeous day. And as sea levels rise, this kind of flooding is becoming increasingly common in cities like Miami. People are sort of used to it. But it is astonishing for most people to look down and watch over the course of several hours water completely fill a street when there's no rain anywhere, no broken water main, no nothing. And that's just the result of really high tides driven even higher by sea level rise. Alex is from Florida originally, so the concept of sea level rise wasn't new to her. But when she moved to Miami, she was kind of blown away. I lived in Miami Beach for many years, and I nearly lost my car on at least two occasions. Uh, My street flooded pretty regularly. You'd see the canal would breach, and it would push over, and it would fill the whole streets. But if you go back a block from the water, you would see manhole covers literally shaking with the pressure of water spewing out of them. Last month brought another UN climate report. It was, yet again, another dire climate report. And it cited Miami's sunny day floods as an example of climate impacts that are hitting cities today. And as Alex says, these floods are so common, people are already getting used to them. But the report also referenced a concept that many people are not used to, maladaptation. And it pointed to Miami's response to the floods as a case study. I'd never heard the term maladaptation uh, before I read this report. I um, have heard people talk about, you know, maybe we're not adapting in the correct way, but I didn't know there was a specific term maladaption for it until I read this report. I've never even seen it cited in a science paper. I've never talked about it with scientists. I've never talked about it with climate experts. It was new to me totally. The city of Miami has invested heavily in infrastructure to counter rising sea levels, but it's unclear whether that money will help the problem or lead to more unintended consequences. The city of Miami specifically is going to have to spend around $6 billion in the next 20 or 30 years, installing stormwater pumps, raising roads, making the pipes underneath the road big enough to handle all the extra water, and fixing seawalls. And if they do it right, they create an area that people continue to invest in and live in for decades. And if they do it wrong, they doom parts of the city to be flooded and unlivable and uninvestable in the next 20 or 30 years. And that is a high wire act that uh, the city is really trying to walk properly. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, as the effects of climate change accelerate, cities around the world are spending billions of dollars to adapt to rising sea levels and extreme temperatures. But what happens when those investments backfire and make the problem worse? Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. 
Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Maladaptation. It may be a new word for most of us, but Dr. Lisa Shipper has been studying it for decades. This is a word that I'm very familiar with because I've been working on it for a long time. In fact, maladaptation is when adaptation to climate change, so efforts to try to adjust to the impacts of climate change go really wrong and actually make people worse off. We don't know so much how we can prevent it, but it's something that has taken quite a big spot in the the IPCC report that just came out. Dr. Shipper is a researcher at the University of Oxford, and she's a lead author on last month's UN Climate Report. And as we said at the top of the show, the report cites Miami as a city where efforts to adapt to climate change might actually be leaving some people worse off. Alex Harris says Miami's sunny day flooding is more than just a nuisance. It's a real problem for people who live in the city. Garbage trucks can't go down certain streets. School buses can't go down certain streets. People can't get to the bus stops they need to get to. It comes into your homes, your church, your school, your business. It's causing a lot of issues down here. Some of the worst flooding, Alex remembers, happened back in 2015. So 2015 was one of the worst king tides South Florida has seen in a long, long, long time. The flooding was insane. I was astounded by how deep the water got. I mean, there were politicians out there wearing wading boots up to their knees that were sloshing through this water, talking about the importance of sea level rise money and adaptation. And they were Republicans. The Republican mayor of the city of Miami, uh, Tomas Regalado, was knee-deep, in rubber boots, wading through water, holding an umbrella, and just staring at the camera with like a look of incredulity, like what is going on? And up till this point, he hadn't really, you know, climate change was something that come up, but it wasn't very common or popular to mention, especially for Republican politicians, especially in Miami. Uh, but that that day changed his mind. The flooding put a spotlight on infrastructure and what needed to change to keep sea level rise at bay. That sort of kick-started a lot of this attention, both from press and also from politicians and residents. And I think the first pumps and um, big pieces of infrastructure like, infrastructure, like road raising, really got kicked off around 2017, 2018. So this is still a pretty recent addition for us down here. Miami Beach is the first community in the U.S. to dramatically raise roads. We're talking three feet And that has made a huge difference in the ability of some of these neighborhoods to weather floods. One neighborhood in Miami Beach, known as Sunset Harbor, uh, since they raised roads in 2018, they've avoided 157 tidal floods. Raising roads and putting in stormwater pumps solved the problem for some people. But for others, it created a set of unforeseen consequences. So the millions of dollars that communities have spent, you know, building up seawalls and lifting buildings and installing stormwater pumps has made certain areas much safer to live in. The problem is when you have a safer area like that, 
people with more money look at that and say, oh, perfect, that's where I want to live. And you're displacing low and middle class folks so that rich people can live there because they think it's safer. Uh, we've always referred to that down here as climate gentrification. It was mentioned in the IPCC report as maladaptation, which I thought was really interesting. In Miami Beach specifically, property values went up after the roads were raised. The city paid for a study on the impact of these investments in combating flooding and found that property values increased by 11%, which is great if you already own property, but for low- and middle-income renters, it could mean getting pushed out of the neighborhood. When you think about it in the way the IPCC report talked about it, you're saying that you are potentially gentrifying these communities and making it so that now that it's safer, wealthier people feel like, oh, I want to live there. The example from Miami is good because some of these areas are very attractive to live in, but th when they come with flooding hazard, they become less attractive. But of course, if the flooding hazard is then addressed, then you'll have much more attractive real estate. And you have a lot of these examples around the world, actually, in different places that are trying to create a kind of utopia areas that are meant for people to have sort of both sort of sustainable lives, but also risk of a coastal kind of sea level rise or other kinds of hazards. Um, and then what it does is it often it'll shift, just shift the hazard somewhere else as well. So you kind of create these structures that pr protect certain groups, but then other groups become more exposed as a consequence of the way that the structures are designed. Alex Harris thinks other coastal cities across Florida are likely to see the same effects of maladaptation. When you think about it, it does make Miami Beach a canary in a coal mine. It's just a very specific and strange place to live. Um, but I could definitely see this phenomenon happening over and over again on the mainland as, you know, the problem gets worse and cities and counties spend more money to do things like raising roads. But everybody's kind of eyes on Miami Beach for how these road raising and stormwater pumps and solutions are working because they're the only ones that are doing it right now and everybody is watching them to say, okay, what's going right? What's going wrong? What's going to happen when I do that in my community? Coming up after a short break, the bigger picture. What does maladaptation in Miami mean for investments in climate infrastructure in the rest of the world? Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live, interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CEO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say political climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co-hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations. And to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon and Emily, every other week, starting in April, for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Maladaptation has been discussed and studied for decades, but it's only now emerging as a mainstream concept. 
and Dr. Shipper has been one of the researchers at the forefront of studying the impact. So it's not a new term for you, but it's a new term for many communicators. Why is it such a suddenly new term for many people? Well, the reality is that for the last 15 years, we've had a lot more adaptation projects, programs, and plans implemented around the world. And also in the last five or six years, we've had a lot of studies done trying to understand the outcomes of these projects. And one thing that we're seeing is that the projects often don't really help people adapt to climate change. So sometimes it'll be just sort of wasted money. Whatever they're trying to do isn't, isn't really achieved. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is that the projects are so poorly planned that they actually make people worse off. And in the worst case, this could mean that they're sort of undermining opportunities for future adaptation. So it's important because we're talking now about the need for huge investments in adaptation to climate change around the world. But if some of the, the, the evidence now is showing that we're actually putting money towards things that are making people worse off, well, what does that mean for the money? And what does it mean for trying to adjust this? So this term was first mentioned in um, international climate discussions and scientific reports in the 90s. And then over the course of the last three decades, we've seen lots of examples of adaptation, attempts at adapting to climate change through building certain kinds of infrastructure. Some of them have gone poorly. What kind of examples have you seen since then that has fed into this uh, concept of maladaptation? Yeah, so there's three types of maladaptation strategies. Um, there are the infrastructural ones, the institutional ones, and then the behavioral ones. And I would say that, for instance, um, the infrastructural ones are probably the ones that are most challenging because, first of all, typically huge costs involved. And what we're talking about in very many places is some form of structure that protects coastal settlements. So you might have um, seawalls um, that are there to prevent against um, storm surges or cyclones or other kinds of things. And also some places actually structures that are there to, to address uh, sea level rise. And so obviously the intention is good. And that's always the idea behind what eventually turns into a maladaptation is that the the idea is to you know to to help people to protect people but uh there are some examples especially from um areas where you have people living in a lot of low-lying coastal areas so bangladesh or the pacific islands for example um in one case in fiji where you have a seawall that was built but they didn't take into account the fact that it actually also rains and there needs to be rain water needs to drain and so what happened was on the inside of the wall there was a lot of flooding and there was no way they just hadn't hadn't allowed for the water to drain and that created new hazard for people here in the US we're thinking a lot about climate positive infrastructure development the Biden administration has earmarked you know billions of dollars to help with adaptation efforts and the hope was that under the Biden administration we would see you know decades of potential spending to help local communities adapt do you have a sense for whether these priorities could encourage more maladaptation going forward? On the one hand, we have huge amounts of evidence that we're not doing adaptation right. On the other hand, we're telling everybody that 
the window of opportunity to act is now. Like we have no more time to waste. So while we quickly, quickly have to figure out what exactly have we been doing wrong and how to fix it in terms of adaptation, we then we we also have to, we have to do it just in this really short period of time. And I think um, that is the challenge: is you know, do we move ahead quickly now, knowing that the clock is ticking? But recognizing these risks of maladaptation, or do we take it a bit slower and implement things when we have a little bit more knowledge? I would say we probably need to act now. Um, I think the key is also that we know from the assessment, in fact, that the best way to use money is to have climate resilient infrastructure now rather than retrofitting things later. So, you know, we don't want to build anything now that isn't going to be climate resilient and think about climate change because that's going to be an absolutely waste of money and potentially maladaptive. Uh, but besides the maladaptation risk, it's really about, you know, a potential waste of money. We are at a point now where countries, cities, communities all around the world are going to start to develop climate adaptive infrastructure in increasingly desperate ways, trying to do it quickly. And I wonder how much that worries you. Yeah, I mean, it does worry me. I have, obviously, I, I have a little bit of an obsession with this concept of maladaptation, partly because I've seen it happen for so long. And particularly because I think there are lots of groups acting in the name of climate change and in the name of adaptation, but not actually understanding what either is. And so, you know, really the key is for anybody who's working in these areas to understand what are the climate impacts that my community or this community is facing now and also what will be the impacts in the future. So I think it's, you know, it's really important to keep multiple different dimensions in mind at the same time which is, of course, really challenging, I recognize. But that's kind of part of the, the story of the IPCC report is about climate resilient development that takes into account all these dimensions, the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, the need to adapt to climate change, but also sustainable development, and then how they have to be kind of done in, in an integrated way. Dr. Shipper says at this point, we actually don't know that much about how to prevent maladaptation. But climate change isn't going anywhere, and cities like Miami need to make big investments in climate-adaptive infrastructure right now. Alex Harris says cities around the world might have something to learn from Miami, and a big part of it is considering what might happen to those who are most vulnerable. I think something cities need to think about if they watch what happens in Miami is that when you improve a community, which you should be doing, and that's great, please do it. What happens to the people who already live there? You need to look at a community. Is this a community of homeowners? So they're going to stay there, right? Is this going to increase their property taxes and like make it harder for them to live there? Is it a community of renters? Are the homeowners and property owners going to cash out? Um, where would people leave? Where would they go if they left? I think that's something that people in policy positions and leaders of communities need to think about. It's not just what happens physically to the place, it's what happens to the people. Alex Harris is a climate change reporter for the Miami Herald. 
And Dr. Lisa Shipper is an environmental social science research fellow at the University of Oxford. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Our Postscript producers are Alexandria Herr, Jamie Kaiser, Cecily Mesa-Martinez, Dalvin Abouage, and Daniel Waldorf. Ann Bailey is our editor. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our theme. Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Give us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. Send us your thoughts on social media and send a link to this show to a friend or colleague. I'm Stephen Lacey. Thanks for being here. This is The Carbon Copy. Mm-hmm.